Please turn me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 22, verse 30, through chapter 23, verse 5. Acts twenty-two thirty 30, through 23, 5. The book of Acts shows us how the church began and grew during the first few decades of its existence. It's an amazing history, and it shows us the incredible power that the Spirit of God has as He works mightily through His faithful people. And so, as we saw, the church began with a few people in an upper room in Jerusalem at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, and then it grew from there to reach lost souls all the way to the ends of the earth for the glory of God. Acts began by looking primarily at the Apostle Peter's ministry. But since chapter 13, Acts has been focusing on the ministry of the, of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Paul's now ended his third missionary journey and he's now in the city of Jerusalem. And if you remember, Paul has been in, unjustly beaten by an angry Jewish mob. He was then arrested and allowed to give a defense before the mob that just tried to kill him, which as we saw was really a great testimony of the grace and goodness of God. Paul finished his defense by making the mob very angry, and that's when he was taken inside the Roman barracks where they were going to flog him in order to extract more information from him. Paul then let them know that he was a Roman citizen, and so they withdrew from him. Why did they withdraw? Because being a Roman citizen was a very big deal at this time when Rome ruled the the land. See, Roman citizens were entitled protection from the accusations of non-citizens, and also from the more extreme forms of punishment like a brutal flogging. And look, here is Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains, and just about to be flogged. That's not good. Especially when he hasn't even been formally charged with a crime. The Roman commander needs to be very careful with Paul from here on out. Very, very careful. Let's find out what happens next. Verse 30. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all the council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. And we're going to stop here for now. And here in today's passage, we note two facts regarding Paul and his current situation. The first fact is this, that Paul met with the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. See, here's a question that Lysias, that Roman commander, needed to find an answer to. What exactly had Paul done to arouse the anger of the Jews in the temple? I mean, they nearly beat Paul to death, and they clearly wanted Paul dead. And the question is, why? Paul must have done something wrong, right? I mean, so the question is, what did Paul do wrong? Lysias still didn't know, and so the next day, the Sanhedrin was, was ordered to come and interrogate Paul. Here's the thought of Lysias. The only way I'm going to get a testimony out of this guy that's going to make any sense is to take him to the tribunal of his own people. And so that's what Lysias does. For again, he needed to uncover the real reason for the chaos in the temple that had caused the Jews to attempt to kill Paul. So the next day, Lysias released Paul from his bonds and the commander, he commanded the chief priests and all the council to appear brought Paul down and set him before them. Now, note that this examination by the Sanhedrin wasn't a trial in the strict sense of the word. That occurs in chapter 24. Instead, what we have here is more like a a pre-trial hearing. Now, usually the Sanhedrin met in a place called the Hall of Hewn Stones, which was a place that was set aside for them 
in a room in the temple. The room was much like an amphitheater where the high priest would sit in the front. The other 70 members of the council would sit around in a semicircle, and the prisoner would stand in the middle. That was the usual format. But here, it seems that Lysias gathered the Sanhedrin down in the basement of the fortress of Antonia, the building right there next to the temple where the Roman garrison was stationed and where Paul was being held. Note that the Sanhedrin didn't require the permission of the Roman commander to meet, but since this was just a pre-trial hearing, the commander could order a special meeting of the council in order to gather the relevant facts concerning Paul. And so they came and they gathered together and Paul was then brought down to them. Now, we've met the Sanhedrin before, remember? We've met them before. Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin and they unjustly condemned Christ to death, the one who never did anything wrong. (laughs) Peter and John stood before the Sanhedrin back in Acts chapter 4. And that's when Peter boldly said, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The twelve also stood before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 5. Their response? We ought to obey God rather than men. The apostles were then beaten, and remember, they left rejoicing that they were considered worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen stood before the Sanhedrin where he gave a great testimony for the Lord. And what did they do? They killed him. And now here in Acts 23, Paul is now standing before the Sanhedrin. Now think about that. All of these men of God have stood before the Sanhedrin. And all of them have testified to the amazing grace of God, including Christ himself. And the the response of the Sanhedrin? Hardness. Rejection. Hatred of Christ, His truth, and His people. This isn't good. Now again, the Sanhedrin was the Jewish Supreme Court of the day. And just so you know, the Jews took their justice system very seriously. Just before they entered the Promised Land, the book of Deuteronomy gives them all kinds of instructions about life and their society as a nation. Why did they take this so seriously? Because this was given to Moses from the hand of the Lord God Almighty Himself. By the time of Christ, the law was applied in every place. See, there were synagogues in every town, and the synagogue was basically the center of justice. If a town had 120 men, they would then have a local court called a Sanhedrin, which means a gathering together. The little Sanhedrin court was made up of 23 men who sat as judges on that court. One of them was designated a ruler, and the others were then judges, and basically, all judgment was rendered from this group. Smaller areas that had less than 120 men would still be required to choose some of the elders out of their little village and appoint them as judges. And again, these councils were responsible for governing every community, for they were the ones who made the decisions about legal matters of every kind. Now, the city of Jerusalem had the Supreme Court, (coughs) the Great Sanhedrin, which was made up of 70 men plus the high priest, which made, anybody, how many? 71. Good job. On the great Sanhedrin, there were chief priests, elders, scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees. The high priest was a moderator and president of that group. Now remember, the high priest was the priest that was chief over all other priests in Israel. The high priest functioned, or he was supposed to function, 
as the mediator between God and His people that culminated in Him entering into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement, a major, major event. It was a massive responsibility that must be taken very seriously by an incredible man of God. But here was the problem. The high priest was not a man of God. Not in any way. That's quite a problem. The chief priests were composed of former high priests and also of members of influential priestly families. Elders were also on the council, and elders were older men who were not only family heads, but who were also heads of tribes who were chosen from among the people to sit in leadership on the Sanhedrin. Scribes were also on the Sanhedrin. Scribes, or teachers of the law, were a professional group of men who studied, taught, and interpreted and transmitted the law of God that's found in the Old Testament. The scribes took their job of preserving Scripture very seriously. They would copy and they would recopy the Bible meticulously, even counting letters and spaces to ensure that each copy was correct, which is very good, right? I mean, the Word of God should be cherished. The Word of God should be treasured and not treated flippantly. That said, the scribes as a whole were a bunch of hypocrites. And while their original aim was to know and preserve the law of God and to encourage others to do that, sadly, they put their man-made traditions ahead of God's Word. And as a whole, these men were a bunch of religious frauds. They went far beyond the interpretation of Scripture. And they added many man-made traditions to what God had actually said. Pretty soon, their traditions became more important than the Word of God itself, and their religion became a legalistic, external, rule-keeping, empty form of religion that highly offended God. No heart, see? No heart. And while they were supposed to be all about the Word of God, to them it was lip service. And think of this. While these people were daily knee-deep in the Word of God, they actually hated God and they hated the people of God. And that's what happens when you have religion without heart, right? That's what happens when it's all external, when it's all about duty and not love. Beware yourself. Pharisees and Sadducees also made up the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees were a Jewish party that consisted of about 6,000 Jewish men who set themselves apart from the people so they could study and interpret the law of God. They were very strict, they were very legalistic, and they were known for their extremely rigid adherence to the finer points of the law. But even more, they put their own man-made rules and traditions on par with and even above the Scriptures. The Pharisees represented the core of Judaism, and they had an incredibly strong influence on the people of Israel, and they were a very powerful group of people. But look, as a whole... The Pharisees strongly opposed Christ and the people of Christ, and they too were massive hypocrites. Finally, you had the Sadducees. Now at this time, the Sadducees were a relatively small religious party among the Jews who tended to be wealthy, and even though they were small, they were very powerful. All the chief priests were Sadducees. The high priest himself was a Sadducee. And the Sadducees held the majority of the 70 seats of the Sanhedrin. Very powerful. But look, the Sadducees were not men of God. Not in any way. See, not everyone who has a religious title is godly, right? Please don't be fooled by external things, but rather you know them by their fruit, and the fruit of these religious leaders was rotten to the core. 
Four disturbing truths mark the Sadducees. One, they were extremely self-sufficient to the point of denying God's involvement in everyday life. Two, they denied any resurrection from the dead. Therefore, three, they denied any afterlife whatsoever. See, the Sadducees only accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, as authoritative. And because of that, they falsely believed that Moses didn't teach resurrection or life after death in the Pentateuch. And so the Sadducees lived only for the moment and for whatever profit they could make in this life only. Think about that. For to them, there was nothing beyond. Nothing. And therefore, when they died, it was over, so they lived for this life only. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? The Apostle Paul says that if in this life only we have hope in Christ, then we are of all men the most pitiable, 1 Corinthians 15, 19. And that was the Sadducees, truly pitiful. And then four, the Sadducees denied the existence of a spiritual world. So this is it for them. How sad and what a lie of the wicked one. These guys too hated God and they hated the truth of God, even though they claimed to love God and the truth of God. Hey, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. And their actions revealed what they truly were. And look, here Paul stands before the Sanhedrin, these 71 Jewish men who, even though they were supposed to be the godliest men, and even though they were supposed to uphold the truth of God, they were indeed wicked men who didn't really care about God or the truth. So here Paul is, standing before these men, the Sanhedrin, so that they can hear from him and pin some kind of crime on him. That's their aim. That's their goal. Note this. Note that Paul himself was not only a Pharisee in the past, which he says, but it seems clear that Paul was also once himself a member of the Sanhedrin. That's very interesting. In Acts 26.10, Paul says that he cast his vote to condemn Christians to death, which is something that would have been reserved to the members of the Sanhedrin. It's an amazing thought. It's been a couple of decades since that time, since Paul got saved. But Paul knew the Sanhedrin well, and he knew how they functioned. So, here he is before them. Let's find out what happens. Verses 1 through 5, chapter 23. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren... I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law. And do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by him said, do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Very interesting. So look, the second fact to note from this passage is that Paul spoke to the Sanhedrin and said, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Note Paul's confidence here. Look, he looks earnestly at the council. See, there's no shame here. He's not cowering before them. He's not afraid of them at all, not in any way. The word earnestly means to be compelled and to be completely fixed upon, even in the sense of staring at someone. And so Paul looks them straight in the eyes and he has no shame and he has no fear at all. He's looking, he's staring at them. Note that Paul began to speak to the council right away. 
Some think that this was rude of Paul since it was their meeting. And also, an accused person should only speak when they were given permission to speak. So, I guess the question to ask is, is Paul being rude? I certainly don't think so. I mean, if he had time to stare at them, then they certainly had time to begin the meeting. Now, I think Paul, again, is being bold. I think he's letting them know that he's not going to be bullied by them. So there were no formal introductions or legal pronouncements of any kind. In fact, no formal charges have been made against Paul by the Jews or by this council. So, to what charge was Paul answering in this court? Probably the original charge that was made against him, that he taught all men everywhere against the people and the law of this place, and also that he had defiled the temple by bringing a Gentile into the temple area, a place where Gentiles weren't allowed to enter, which Paul didn't do. See, all that would be easy for Paul to refute because he did no such thing. And so Paul began with what was in effect a not guilty plea. Look, he said, his conscience was clear. Note a couple of things about this. Note that this isn't to be viewed as a statement of Paul's lack of awareness at his own sinfulness before God, not at all. Paul was clearly, clearly aware of that. Some have said that by Paul saying this, that he clearly lacked an introspective conscience so that he was devoid of any sense of guilt. Again, not at all, not in any way. For since becoming a Christian, Paul was all too aware of his sinfulness. He was all too aware of his guilt. He himself said, I am a chief sinner. And also, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I want to do. (laughs) Paul knew. Clearly he knew. So, what's he saying here? First, Paul's responding to the charge that has been made against him. And so Paul addressed that and said that he has fulfilled his duty toward God in all good conscience, which meant that he hadn't broken the law of God, the laws of the temple, or the Roman law. In other words, what you guys are accusing me of isn't true, and God knows that it isn't true. My conscience is clear regarding this. Yes, there's that. It also goes deeper than this. See, I have lived is in the perfect tense, which speaks of Paul's abiding attitude and practice. So while Paul clearly knows that he's not perfect, he was indeed confident of his good conscience before God. See, he knew his heart. And his heart loved the Lord. And his heart sought earnestly to please his Lord. Paul wasn't faking his faith. He was the real deal. He wasn't a fraud. He was compelled by love for God. And he was compelled by love for others. He wasn't faking his love for the Lord or others in any way. In 2 Timothy 1.3, very near the end of his life, Paul said, I served God with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did. Now again, that doesn't mean that Paul never sinned. But it means that the un- underlying direction and the underlying motive of his life was to obey and love and worship and please his God. See, having a good conscience means that you're not harboring sin in your heart right now. That you aren't trying to hide anything from God. That you've repented. That all is good between you and others and all is good between you and God right now and you intend it to remain that way. See, continually rejecting God's truth and harboring sin causes the conscience to become progressively less sensitive to sin as if it was covered with layers of unspiritual scar tissue. But Paul's conscience was clear. It was sensitive. It was responsive to the Spirit's convicting voice. God is pleased with me. 
I love the Lord and I want to please Him. I'm not perfect, but I've given my sin over to Him and I keep doing that. I, I want to glorify Him. I'm not harboring sin in my heart. I'm not holding on to a grudge. I'm not seething with ungodly anger inside. No, God sees and God is pleased and my conscience is clear. That's Paul. I love that. What about you? You're harboring sin right now? You're trying to hide something? God sees. You know, the good news, the good news is that God is always ready and eager to forgive and renew His people when they have fallen, when they go to Him. Don't hide it. But when they go to Him, when they repent, when they seek His face, and that's good news for all of us. Right? We've all fallen in many ways. Many ways. But God is a God of mercy and a God of grace and a God of forgiveness to all who want it and to all who seek it from Him. Praise the Lord for that. And so Paul could look at the Sanhedrin in the eyes and say with confidence that his heart was right, that God was pleased, and that their accusations against him were wrong. I guess the question to ask is, how's your heart today? Good consciences don't hide and harbor sin. They repent and they give it over to God right away. Good consciences pass the test under the watching eyes of God. Good consciences can look God in the eye and know that God is pleased with them. Good consciences flee sin and pursue God and they aren't hiding anything again. What about you? Note this also. That phrase, live my life, literally means to live as a citizen. And so in using this term, it seems that Paul is suggesting that even though he claimed to be a Roman citizen, he saw himself primarily as a citizen of heaven. So this term that Paul uses is very purposeful and it was used to show the Sanhedrin what is dominant motivation in life was to live as one who is a member of the kingdom of heaven, which Paul certainly did. So the boldness, the earnest look, and the words that Paul used before the Sanhedrin, they portray one clear message, that Paul is a man of a single purpose and aim, to glorify and to please his Lord and Savior. And pressure from people isn't going to cause Paul to waver from that one aim. See, They aren't going to intimidate Paul because his aim is clear to glorify God. And they aren't going to cause Paul to be ashamed of Christ. And they aren't going to cause Paul to cower or to compromise. No way. For he knows that he's a citizen of heaven and he will conduct himself as such. So Paul's already said a mouthful with just a few words, hasn't he? I answer to God. He's the one I love. He's the one I live for. He's the one I seek to please. He's the one I seek to glorify. Not you. Not you. I'm a citizen of heaven, not here. And my life will reflect that reality. And it did. Question, does your life give you away as a citizen of heaven like Paul? Or, like so many around us, prayerfully not us, or are you way too worldly-minded, focused too much on the here and the now, caring way too much what people think of you and prone too much to the thoughts and to the opinions and to the pressures of this sinful world? Beware. Beware. Paul's a good example for all of us. Note also how Paul addressed the council, men and brethren. That's not normal. See, the normal way to address the Sanhedrin was to say something like Peter said in chapter 4, you rulers of the people and elders of Israel, which elevated them and which also catered to their pride. But Paul didn't do that, no. Instead, he basically said, hey guys, men and brethren, which puts them on the same status as him. Why did Paul address them like this? I believe that all of this was done 
to again show them that Paul wasn't afraid of them, that they weren't going to intimidate him, and that he wasn't going to cower in fear in front of them. And I think the point came across very, 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 very clearly. Look what happened. Right after the words came out of Paul's mouth, the high priest then commanded that those who were near to Paul to strike him on the mouth, which was illegal for them to do. The high priest was named Ananias. Ananias served as high priest from A.D. 47 to 58, and so he's been serving as high priest for a few years now up to this point. Ananias was not a man of God, and he did no honor to the office of high priest. He was well known for his greed. One commentator described Ananias as a violent, haughty, gluttonous, and vicious man. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus tells of how Ananias stole for himself the tithes that belonged to the common priests. He also noted that Ananias did not scruple to use violence and assassination to further his interests. So, clearly, Ananias was not a good man. He was not a godly man. Now think of that. That guy was the high priest. He was supposed to be a man of God. He was supposed to take God, His Word, and His people Seriously, he was supposed to love God. And he was supposed to love the people of God. But he was an evil and wicked man who hated God and who hated the people of God. So much for titles. They mean nothing. If you're not living it. Hey, hypocrisy runs very deep. A hypocrite is an actor. A hypocrite is someone who puts on a mask, that's literally what the word represents, and pretends to be something that he or she is not. Spiritually speaking, the hypocrite is a person who makes an outward show of religion, but all it is, is an outward show. They put on a performance to impress people, but it's not a reality in their heart. It's not a reality in their life. No, it's a big act. The hypocrite pretends goodness and godliness, but beneath a religious veneer is a deceitful heart. Hypocrites, see are spiritual frauds. They are actors. They are fake. And guess what? God hates it. Beware. Take heed. Because God knows the truth. J.C. Ryle said, Let us have a settled determination to watch and pray against hypocrisy. Whatever we are as Christians, let us be real, thorough, genuine, sincere. We may be weak and erring and frail and come far short of our aims and of our desires. But at any rate, if we profess to believe in Christ, let us be true. And I say amen to that. Just be real. Be real. Because God knows and God's the one that we should be concerned about. Think about this. These men who made up the Sanhedrin were the who's who of the most powerful, prominent religious leaders in Israel. These men knew the Old Testament Scriptures in painstaking detail. They were completely immersed in the world of religious ritual. They could argue theology for hours and hours on end. But here's the problem. These guys were spiritually dead. These guys were spiritually lost. They didn't know God, nor did they love God. And look, they're trying to do all they can to silence the true messengers of God. That shows us that knowing about God isn't enough. Knowing about God isn't enough. No, we must know Him in a personal way, head and heart. Otherwise, it's just man-made empty ritual that means nothing to God and that will do you no good either. God looks to the what? The heart. 
How's your heart? Heart of the issue, as one said, is the issue of the heart. How's your heart? What does God see when He looks past what everybody else sees and when He looks deep into your heart of hearts? That's the issue today. The Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart, 1 Samuel 16, 7. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart, Proverbs 21, 2. Let your heart therefore be loyal to the Lord our God, to walk in His statutes and to keep His commandments as to this day, 1 Kings 8, 61. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And first and foremost, God wants our hearts. He wants us to be captivated by Him. He wants us to be lost in wonder, awe, and praise to Him. And why shouldn't we be? Why not? I mean, look at who He is and look at what He's done. See, He wants us to obey Him from a heart that is intensely in love with Him. And to do any less is to miss the mark. Look, hypocrisy is cured by a heart that is in love with the Lord. Where's your heart today? May we be like David who said, when God said, seek my face, my heart said to you, Lord, your face I will seek. That wasn't the people of the Sanhedrin who were all external and no heart. May we be different than them. May we be all heart today and may the inward reality flow up and out of us into godly action that honors our beloved Lord and Savior. And God knows, see, God knows. Now look, at this time, the high priest was appointed by Rome. And the office of high priest was more a political thing than religious. As one said, the high priest was politically religious and religiously political. How sad is that? So, sinfully sad. And if we trusted in people to save us, there would be no hope, right? Because people will let us down every time. Even the best of men are men at best, and even the godliest of men sin and fall and fail, but guess who doesn't? Jesus. Put your hope in Him, not others. Jesus is Savior and Lord, and He is perfect, and He can save your soul. He alone, and He's not a hypocrite, praise the Lord. He's not a fraud, He's not a fake. No, He's God the Son, and He never fails, and He saves, and He forgives completely, and He alone should be the center of our lives, our all in all, our Lord and Savior, the one that we put our trust in to save us, forgive us, and take us home to glory, and He's very good at what He does. Put your hope in Him, not in men. So the high priest ordered Paul to be struck on the mouth, something that was not only illegal, but also highly offensive to a Jew by the hands of a Jew. Why did he do this? Well, obviously, the high priest didn't like what Paul had said. Perhaps Paul's claim of a good conscience had been taken to suggest Sanhedrin guilt. Some historians have pointed out that Ananias was politically unstable as a high priest because he was suspected of causing Jewish riots five years earlier after he had come into office. In light of that suspicion, he felt the need to show public signs of strength. Thus, he commanded Paul to be hit. Whatever the case, Paul was indeed commanded to be struck, and I believe he was indeed struck after just getting beaten nearly to death the day before. Look at Paul's response, verse 3. God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? In other words... 
You have me punched in the mouth, but God will punch you in the mouth, you phony hypocrite. That's, that's what he said. I wonder how these words were said, because I think that's kind of important, you know. Uh, what was Paul's tone like? Was this an outburst of anger, or was it a calm, collected rebuke? That would be good to know, but we don't know. Whatever the tone, what Paul said was indeed accurate, right? The man who commanded that a defenseless man be punched in the face was indeed a whitewashed wall, clean on the outside, but dirty on the inside. That much was true. Look, the only whitewashed walls in Jerusalem were tombstones. So Paul's saying, you're like a tombstone, whitewashed on the outside, but within, you're filled with rotten flesh and the bones of the dead. True. What's also true is that in the near future, God would indeed strike down Ananias, for it was only a few years later when Ananias was deposed and then assassinated by anti-Roman Jewish revolutionaries. So Paul spoke words of truth here. But here's a question that divides commentators Was Paul's response right? Many say yes and many say no. (laughs) Many think that in this we see a bit of Paul's humanity coming out. Jesus remained silent before his accusers, which who, who, who was also punched and beaten, right? But unlike Jesus, Paul doesn't remain silent. So many believe that it would have probably been better if Paul had not responded at all like Christ. Side note, Jesus did indeed speak to his accusers, but he didn't react to them like Paul does. So many believe that Paul momentarily lost his composure a bit, some say a lot, which would have brought Ananias great joy and would have also put Paul at a disadvantage before the council. And even though Paul did much better than any of us would have done, <laughs> the best thing for Paul would not who have been would not have been for him to respond. Many believe that. Others think that Paul did absolutely nothing wrong. What the high priest did was illegal, and so Paul spoke truth to them. My thoughts? I don't know. I, I've wavered on both sides. I don't know. I like to give Paul the benefit of the doubt. I really do, based on what I've learned about Paul in the book of Acts. And since I don't know the tone in which Paul said these words, which I think is very, very important, I'm really not able to make a definitive judgment about Paul's response. I prefer to err on grace with this, but I also think that the best response would have probably been for Paul to say nothing. For if Paul would have said nothing, then this wouldn't be an issue and Paul wouldn't have had to apologize. Look what happened, verse 4. Those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? Uh Uh-oh. Reviling the high priest was a very serious thing because the office was a God-ordained position. Oh yes, the high priest himself was a truly wretched man, but the position was one that should be respected by the Jewish people. See, to revile the high priest is against the law, and again, the position was one that should be honored. So Paul responded in verse 5, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Really? I didn't know. How could he not know? Some believe that Paul did indeed know who the high priest was, that Paul's being, instead, Paul's being sarcastic here, that his response meant something like this, oops, Sorry, I didn't know, the, because a man sitting over there, I, I never knew a man like that could be the high priest of Israel. Or, oops, he, he certainly didn't act like a high priest, so how could I recognize him as such when he's totally out of character as a man in such a position of the high priest? Sarcasm. 
I don't think Paul's being sarcastic here. Others believe that Paul was sincere, that he really didn't know that the guy that he called a whitewashed wall was the high priest. How could he not know? Several reasons. First, this was an informal and hastily gathered assembly of the Sanhedrin, and they weren't meeting in their normal place. They were meeting in the fortress of Antonia. So things were different than they normally were. Also, the high priest most likely didn't have on his official dress as the meeting was called quickly by Lysias. On top of that, Paul has been away for a long time. that So long that he didn't know who the high priest was, especially what the high priest looked like. And many commentators believe that. And then it's believed that Paul had very poor eyesight, and that's why he didn't know who the high priest was. And it could have been all those things put together. And this is what I believe. That Paul really didn't know that the guy that he called a whitewashed wall was the high priest. For if he knew, Paul wouldn't have called him a whitewashed wall. And Paul wasn't one to lie either. But look, when Paul realized that he's been guilty of irreverence against the office of high priest, look, he immediately confessed his fault. How good is that? And he quoted Exodus 22.28 that says, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people, which suggests genuine repentance by Paul. And I think that's very good. I mean, that's a good lesson. Paul is not perfect. Paul is a sinful man, but he's a godly man. He's a great example to us in so many ways. And here, he gives us another great example. Repent. Repent. Don't dig your feet in and defend yourself. No, listen. Examine yourself. Be willing and eager to repent for the glory of God because that's what the godly do. You ever seen people who don't do this? Who refuse to listen and who refuse to examine themselves? Perhaps that's even you. This is a word for you. They they were mean. And so you say, hey, that was kind of mean. And and it definitely wasn't the way Christ would want you to act. And so instead of listening and examining themselves and seeking God's glory and repenting, what do they do? They get defensive. They make excuses. They lie to themselves, happens all the time, and they are anything but godly in their response. Know anybody like that? We're all a bit like that, by the way, and it's sinful. And the prayer is that this would wake us up a bit so that we're not so much like that after today for the glory of God. Be like Paul. And be like David in Psalm 139 who wrote, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Be like that. Lord, help us. Hey, we all sin in many ways. Being a hypocrite and portraying something else isn't fooling anybody. We're all sinners. We all know it. We all sin in many ways. But the mark of mature Christians is a heart and lifestyle of repentance. When we honestly listen to others, even when it hurts, we closely examine ourselves because we hate sin so very much and sin is sneaky. And then we earnestly repent of any sin so that we can have a clear conscience and honor our amazing God with passion and zeal because we love Him. Anybody? Come on. Because we love Him and we want to please Him and we want to be men and women of God. May we learn from Paul today. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, so much for your wonderful word of truth. Thank you for this very interesting example. I pray, Lord, that we would learn from this, that we would 
examine Paul's behavior and that we would examine ours and that you would challenge us, Lord, and that we would be people of repentance, that we wouldn't harbor sin, but that we would have clean consciences before you because we're seeking your face, we're repenting of sin, we're not harboring sin, and we're, our deepest desire is to love and glorify you because you alone are worthy. Speak to our hearts, mold us into your image, have your way with us. We love you, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.